When I was a, a, a young man, when I was a teenager, I had a really good friend. He was my best friend growing up and he had muscular dystrophy. So most of the time I knew him as a child, he was uh, either on crutches or in a wheelchair of some type. And uh, when we were teenagers, we were, we got in trouble all the time. We got stopped by the cops outside our, our local town mall on a Friday night. And there was five of us, including my friend who was in a wheelchair. And uh, the cops came over and we had a local local uh, cop that we called Lieutenant Dan, who uh, hung out in the mall parking lot. I guess he was kind of hired by the mall to make sure none of the kids were shoplifting or smoking weed outside the mall. But he uh, came up on us after we had just finished smoking a joint. And uh, he rolled up on us and then he's like, well, you guys smell like marijuana, so I'm gonna check you. So he patted all of us down, but he wouldn't get anywhere near Jeff. He didn't want anything to do with like, trying to navigate the wheelchair or like have to move a child who is like situated in a wheelchair to check and make sure that he's not holding. And he refused to do that. And because of that, we always knew we had a safe place to keep our wheat or wheat or wheat or wheat or wheat or wheat. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 116 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are very pleased to be joined by Britt Young, who's a PhD candidate in geography at UC Berkeley. The occasion for Britt coming on TMK is she does some really excellent work on the intersection of technology and disability. So the, the topic of disability is one... You know, and its relationship to technologies, uh, you know, the uh, the use of assisted technologies, but also, um, as we'll get into with Brit, the the kind of R and D, the research and development of you know prosthetics and other assistive technologies that are nominally designed for people with disabilities, but you know, are they really? And the question of for you know for whom, right? What kind of disabilities, what kind of people are these technologies actually really designed for? Where is the investment going? Um, you know, really important questions that deserve a, a deep dive into. So Britt, thank you so much for coming on TMK. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited about this. Of course. So I think we'll kick right off with you wrote a, a really, really great essay for Wired magazine, which came out back in October. And the 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 title of the the essay was just already really intriguing. My body is used to to design military tech. You really dive into this this history between the prosthetics industry and the military, you know, having this long history, this long kind of interconnected relationship with each other. That in itself, as you know, as we talk about in TMK so much, right, the, the people who are designing these technologies, the political economy of investment and implementation for these technologies has massive influence over what the technologies look for or look like, why they're created, for whom are they created. Um, and so your essay really teases out something I don't think a lot of people really think about, you know, if they ever do think about prosthetics and these assistive technologies, they're probably not thinking about the deep ties with the military. So could could you walk us through a little bit what made you 
want to get into kind of doing this study of it uh, and, and walk us through that relationship between the military and the prosthetics industry. Absolutely. So um, I, was, I was born missing my left forearm. I have uh, up to and just past my left elbow. Um, and this is called a congenital limb deficiency. Some people call this um, a congenital amputee condition. Um, and I have been fitted with prostheses my entire life. I think the, the first time I was ever fit with a, what is called a myoelectric hand, which is a hand that has inside of the socket, some sensors that sit along the arm. And then you are trained to flex your muscles in any way that you can to control it. Um, and they've, they've had these for, um, I think starting in the, in the seventies. Um, and I was among the first cohort of like babies, uh, who started to be fitted with these things. So I was, I was six months old. Um, and that was a, uh, really unquestioned, um, reality for me. Uh, my, my, the doctors that I had as, as an infant told my parents that it was, um, absolutely necessary that I would be fitted with a prosthesis as early as possible because we wanted to convince, I don't know why, but we wanted to convince my subconscious brain that I had two hands. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot loaded in that, in that like desire to, to convince, um, a disabled body that they are like quote normal or whatever. Um, but that was the, that was the baseline assumption for fitting a, um, an infant with uh, a powered hand. And uh, I wore powered hands on and off uh, until I was a teenager. Until as a teenager, I started to have more like, you know, angsty teenager thoughts. And that was directed toward like my, my fucking arm. Um, and I was like, you know what, this thing is like heavy and not really doing a lot for me. And um, I kind of abandoned it for um, what is mostly called a uh, passive hand. So it doesn't do anything, but it looks really good. So they're like custom made. They're modeled after um, your other hand. If you have another hand, it's like a mirror image of it. There's an artist who spends countless hours painting the skin. Mm. So I wore um, passive hands for quite a long time just to what um, we in the disabled community call passing. Um, I wanted to be undetected. I wanted people to assume that I had another hand and that everything was fine and people would leave me alone. Fast forward to more recently, um, I uh, was made aware of some pretty significant changes in the world of robotics and myoelectrics um, in like 2017. Uh, and I decided, you know what? I haven't worn a myo in a really long time, but maybe that shit's different now. Um, and I found a new prosthetist because I have since moved from the, uh, the East coast to the West coast, had to find a new, um, prosthetist who would fit me with this latest and greatest technology. Um, they happen to be located in LA and I wanted to be fit with what was called, uh, the Bebionic hand, um, from a German company called Autobach. And there's, there's a lot baked into that. I mean, it's no coincidence that there, it's a German company, there's been long embroiled in world wars uh, and that they had a lot of soldiers who've lost limbs, just like American soldiers. Um, and anyway, I, I was fitted with this hand. And um, as I wrote about in my article for 
for input, it was extraordinarily disappointing for reasons I can get into. Um, but in my process of interacting with this particular prosthetist, I learned that they had multiple ventures and that one of their side projects, which they put on their website, is um, research and development for police and research and development for the military. And that they're deliberately, I mean, that they're, um, that they're uh, uh, doing research into exoskeletons. Um, mm. And in a couple of uh, articles that I had pulled up, because, I mean, I was just visiting their damn website to just like get an email address. And I'm like, oh, whoa, what's this about freedom fighters? Um, when I pulled that up, um, I found a couple of different articles that they had written about. Um, prosthetists are all about getting uh, everything trademarketed, everything patented. So one of their mm. patent patented technologies is this like way of molding the socket to your arm, um, which is supposed to be distinct than other ways of molding the socket to your arm, um, but that they had then taken that development, that innovation of theirs, and that they're reapplying it to the development of exoskeletons for um, people in combat situations. And that's that's part of like a, it was a, a DARPA grant uh, for research into how to lighten the load of soldiers and also like very quickly access certain weapons off the body. So then when I discovered this, I was like, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't really like these people beforehand and um now i'm now i'm having whole new thoughts about this uh and that that was like the the impetus for for that essay yeah i mean just stumbling across this being like wow <laughs> you know I, I mean it makes sense right there's probably a lot of money and investment you know to be had from like DARPA grants right or had yeah. for um, grants for the you know police departments like mm -hmm. you know it's it's no coincidence that so many of these technologies either like you know at primary or secondary end up becoming like really embroiled in that because that's where that's where the money is that's where the market mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. I mean we can absolutely get into later the uh, the topic of exoskeletons which is one that I've am, am very interested in uh in part because like what is the actual real purpose of an exoskeleton uh you know in in war uh in warehouses you know for for fighting and labor right yeah. like that seems to be a lot of the real purpose for exoskeletons it's it's crazy how much of the technology that's you know originally created by people who want to help but how it gets co-opted for military use. Uh, like you were saying earlier, like DARPA grants, like, you know, um, you know, we have that, ep the first episode we, we did with Daniel Carr talking about the Neuralink, you know, DARPA researchers have been trying to figure out how to attach neurons to people's brains to be able to, you know, use their, their uh, cybernetic limbs or power a wheelchair or, you know, have a drone or a robot but you're not gonna you're not gonna get R and D funding if you're just a science or STEM researcher at a university unless it's got some type of military backing on that. And military is always gonna get first preference on uses of that. And it's like Brad was saying, the technology that you that you have access to now is just the rollover of what was made for the military. And 
we'll probably not in our lifetime see something like Neuralink utilized by the civilian class. It'll be something by uh, drone pilots or fighter pilots in fields of war. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, was, that was also one of the threads, I think, one of the many threads in, the, in, in your Wired piece that was really fascinating, like where if I sit down and think about how I thought or my conception of prosthetics was before, it was a field of products that had been developed partly, like some sense of it coming out of military history, but also a sense of like, as you as you as you divulge in the piece, like the main applications of it for military, for specific technological use cases, and not like as you laid out the the reality for most people, which is that you know African Americans, um, Indigenous people uh, who have higher rates of amputation, but then are denied the the ability to get the sort of prostheses that would help them, and instead. The, they're reserved for the military, for labor productivity, and for hobbyists, and for you know all these sorts of you know for leisure, right? As opposed to uh, being developed for the very people who need them, and the much larger group of people who need them constantly, or would you know benefit from getting them actually. Yeah, I think that the if you look at the history of prosthetics the greatest number of changes occur when there are very, very large number of amputees um, who are surviving that amputation, right? Because there's a point in human history where war was, if you lost a limb, that that was pretty much a guarantee that you would lose your life. Maybe not the same day, but within a few weeks. But there was a certain turning point with the Civil War where people started to survive that amputation with more advanced medical techniques, um, amputation techniques. And um, then there became a very serious market for it. Um, And like at that point, I would say that in the US, we were kind of lucky to have the federal government saying like, okay, so it looks like we have thousands upon thousands of people with missing limbs who'd like to walk again. um, And uh, we need to invest in the companies that are going to provide this. And so they um, sort of like propped up that industry by saying, we will be the biggest buyer. We, we will buy tens of thousands of legs um, because every single person who's lost a leg in the war will get one for free. Um, and that sort of set off the industry to compete with each other. And that's when we have like the origins of the like, patent process where um, one leg manufacturer, say the Salem leg company, that's real. Um, and then Hanger, who was, I'm pretty sure, maybe I'm wrong, pretty sure he was a Confederate, um, Hanger Clinic um, had a competing leg. And then they all are patenting different technologies, say our leg is better than this leg or whatever, whatever. There is just like a turn every single time then there is a global conflict. Mm. There's a turn in um, how much money is flooded into these companies um, and like just, you know, consumer desire. And one of the biggest differences between early 20th century and now is that there aren't that many amputees from war anymore. We have like extremely intense gear that we put on soldiers that 
um, make it extraordinarily unlikely that they will lose a limb. Wow, you said only like fifteen hundred had lost their lives or lost their limbs in the uh, you know the two decades of the war on terror. Exactly, exactly. And you're like, that's a really small market. Um, in fact, more babies are born like me every year. Uh, you would think then that if the market is not soldiers, is not veterans, then the demands on prosthetics manufacturers would change. And that maybe perhaps then the state would step in again and say, okay, um, like, let's say that anytime somebody loses a leg for more common reasons like diabetes, um, we will provide that leg and sort of, you know, catalyze then the growth of prosthetics companies again. But that is not what has happened. Instead, we still have an overemphasis on providing the kinds of prosthetics that have been appealing to and um, providing for the needs of military service people and the military at large. Yeah, you really lay this out uh, in, in your in your piece that this stark divide, such a stark divide between the the haves and the have-nots, between leisure and and living, right? Uh, in terms of the the use and and access to these more advanced. Uh, you know, prosthetics, like you talk about, especially in a place in the U.S. where there is not universal health care. Uh, most people do not have any health coverage or, or very limited health coverage. You know, for the very small number of uh, veterans of war who do have some kind of amputation and need a prosthetic, they get it for free. Right, they they get it for free from the from the from the U.S. Uh, military from the U.S. state. As you lay out. Compare that 1,500 American soldiers that lost a limb in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq. Compare that with, as you mentioned, the uh, the 2,250 babies born each year with missing or partially formed limbs. And then compare that to the 185,000 civilians that undergo an amputation each year uh, in the U.S. with, you know, as, as Ed was mentioning, um, African-Americans are four times as likely to mm -hmm. experience amputation than white Americans. Uh, indigenous Americans are 70% more likely to experience amputation compared to non-Indigenous Americans. Um, yet, you know, for the vast majority of those people, they don't have access to prosthetics or have access to very limited prosthetics mm -hmm. that don't mm -hmm. actually help them with their lives. You know, I was looking at some of as some of the marketing around, you know, these more advanced prosthetics from these from companies like Autobuck. And so much of the marketing is about like this person can go hiking or they can go kayaking, right? Like they can do these more like like upper middle class leisure yep. activities with their prosthetic. But as you talk about in your piece, uh, for the vast majority of people who actually need prosthetics to like live, you know, to live their lives, um, to, to be, yeah, to work, to, to work, to be self-sufficient in some way. Um, they either prosthetics are not being designed for them or they are so expensive, uh, and insurance companies do not count that as medically necessary in a lot of, uh, in a lot of regards or a lot of circumstances that they just don't have access to it at all. 
Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I discovered in the course of writing that piece that was super disturbing to me was how that process actually worked out in determining what was medically necessary or not. So um, what often happens is because the majority of people who have lower limb amputations are older, um, they're, they're, they're over 50, they're over 60. Um, and if before the amputation, they were not considered highly active, if they were not considered um, uh, like pe- people who were professional athletes or firefighters, if they had like a, a, high, a, a high activity profession or something, then it was um, extremely unlikely that they would be approved for a high tech leg. They assume, well, this person, you know, they're not going to go run a marathon anytime soon. So we can give them a low tech leg. Um, but what has um, some researchers have done some just e- extraordinary digging into this. Um, and they found that high tech legs are far less likely to contribute to a fall after amputation than low tech legs. Um, and a low tech leg that might be given to somebody who's in their sixties or seventies who got amputated, um, might contribute to a very serious, very dangerous fall in their older, older years. Um, and that the cost of that kind of fall would completely out, um, outweigh, outcost the, the high tech leg in the first place. And so they're sort of advocating, a number of researchers are advocating that like, you should just be giving people like the the best microprocessor knees on the market every time. I have a, a personal uh, scholarly interest in insurance and its relationship to technology and everything that you're laying out here really shows this kind of very perverse attitude that insurers have of essentially, if you didn't use it, it doesn't matter if you lose it kind of thing, right? Like like yeah. this attitude, yeah, if you weren't using this leg or this arm previous to it being amputated by doing, as you were saying, like these, you know, high activity lifestyle, then if you lose it, what? that's fine, whatever. You weren't using it before. So what, what does it matter now? Like it's a mm-hmm. very perverse attitude towards human life. Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, even if you were approved by your insurance, for a like high tech microprocessor leg or microprocessor foot, whatever, um, you're still strapped with thousands and thousands of dollars to cover the cost of this thing. It's not like, oh, okay, they approved it, now I get it. It's like they approve it and they cover like 40%, 50%. What's 50% of a $30,000 leg, hmm. you know? You know, there was that famous study from like a few years ago that like most people, if they came across a surprise $400 expense, yeah. they wouldn't be able to afford to afford it. You know, a health or a health expense, a, a, a car repair, anything like that. So, yeah, exactly. when, you, when you're talking about like 50% of a $30,000 limb, like that's not helping these people whatsoever. And I think I'm lucky to be able to say that my insurance covers 60%. Right. <laughs> 
or or even even have your insurance cover it at all because that's like you were saying before a lot of times they don't even look at things like that as like a medical necessity so they could just say why are we going to pay yeah. for this myoelectrics arms are still considered like kind of experimental and so they're often not approved so i would also ask them from your research and from your your, your also your own personal experience of it is the way in which the refusal to expand access to um, prosthetics close, more closely tied to um, the refusal to just provide medical care in general in this country or to mm-hmm. like the deep militarization of it and this idea in the popular imagination. And it seems everywhere else that like the only people who really should have unfettered access or like no, no obstructions to access are those in the military or those in one way or another dealing with like frontier of tech? That's a really good question. Um, I think that the, the unspoken sort of boogeyman here, of course, is capitalism. Uh, what has been going on is there's been so much research and development into um, extremely high tech prosthetics that are just expensive because you can make a lot of money by having an expensive thing. Yeah. Um, Especially with the, the most success I've ever had with the prosthesis has been like, like plastic crap. My, my favorite tools for my prosthetic arm, cause I have a, uh, I have what is called an activity arm. Uh, it's, 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 it's a forearm, um, and a socket. And then at the end, there's like a terminal where you can like swap out devices. And some of these devices are like, like a good material or whatever, but most of it's like ABS plastic, like who cares? Um, but like I do push-ups with a silicone um, rubber thing that looks like a mushroom. They actually sometimes call it the mushroom in the industry. And like this should cost nothing. It is so cheap to manufacture. And yet each one of these terminal devices, if I were to pay out of pocket, no insurance, but I still need approval from a doctor because it is a medical device. It is $600 a pop. Jesus. Jesus. And we're like, we're like talking, we're talking about like, like, I don't know, like people interact with more sophisticated stuff like every day, like you play Xbox and that controller is like, takes a lot more time and energy and resources and labor to make. Um, This is like a thing that allows me to do stuff that most bodies can do. And it is like so ridiculously expensive and, but so cheap to make. And Mm. I think that like um, the fact that every time we look into the media and we look at like what has been developed, it's always like, as I said, in the wired piece, like another fucking Maserati arm. It's another multi-articulating Wi-Fi enabled goddamn Bluetooth, whatever. And not like the stuff that works, which is cheap. Yeah, it's it's that it's that medical premium that's applied to it, right? It's like yeah. you take something that's really cheap to make and then you can do a massive markup on it because yeah. you know people will pay for it uh, if they can because they need it to, as you said, like just do things in their life. And so, yeah, it's it's a very exploitative markup uh, that you know once something becomes a medical device. 
uh, you know, even though, as you say, it's just like a piece of like plastic, right? Like something 3d printed or whatever. Um, once it, once it gets that label of medical device, uh, people just see dollar signs in their eyes. Reminds me of the conversation we had a while back with Edward saying, if he could go back in time and kill the guy that invented private property, you know, go back in time and like put a, <laughs> put a bullet in the back of the head of the guy who said, you know what? I can make, I can make a shitload of money off of forcing disabled people into being normal, monetizing that in the process. You were saying when you were a kid, they like trained you to like, here's this, here's this prosthesis, put it on, normalize having two limbs. It's just a ableism that forces people uh, forces disabled people into trying to live as close to an, an able body life as possible. You know, it's the same thing with like kids that are born deaf or putting uh, cochlears on them and then forcing them into a life of going to have that service constantly. And that stuff isn't cheap either. People can live a full life deaf. They don't need a cochlear implant. There are some people, you know, that may not need some of the medical devices that are foistered on them, but then there are people that definitely need it. And they're not treating the people who definitely need it in the same way that they should instead of telling someone, Mm -hmm. no, we're not going to pay for this. Like, it should be available to everybody. Yeah. I think that the one of the things that I uh, find difficult to talk about, difficult to write about, and and is very, very rarely written about, is how much the prosthesis enables you to be left alone. Hmm. being left alone ah, there's nothing quite like it (laughs) (laughs) always want to be left alone um and it and that is because and this is like this this goes back to like the the social condition of disability is like part of the reason why my life can be challenging is just because other people suck other people are annoying um and we haven't taught other people how to behave and how to react how to be respectful Um, And part of the big reason for a lot of people to wear prosthetics, especially upper limb, is to just be left alone. And this isn't about ability and this isn't about like medical device or whatever. It's like, I want to be able to go to the bakery and not have the person selling the bread be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And you're like, everything is fine. Please don't be sorry. Also, stop apologizing. Now you made it weird. (laughs) Um, It was a very huge change for me a couple of years ago when I decided that I would stop wearing prostheses um, for uh, aesthetic reasons. That I would stop going out wearing a passive arm because I used to wear a passive arm every time I was wearing shoes. Like put put on the arm, put on the shoes, get out the door. Phone, wallet, keys, arm. When I had, I mean, I think part of that is like where I live, um, the milieu that I find myself in, the the people that I associate with, um, my friends, my family, like that really makes that safe for me to do. Mm. Um, And uh, I I live in a a city that seems to be pretty chill for the most part about um, uh, disabled bodies. And yet, like I, I went to my doctor uh, the, I got a, a new um, general family doctor the other day. And like, I had a bunch of really awkward interactions with like medical professionals. Cause I'm not wearing an arm. Um, and like, 
I was supposed to get blood drawn and uh, the person who's supposed to draw the blood was like, oh, which arm do you want it from? <gasps> oh my God. Oh, I didn't notice. I'm so sorry. That was so stupid of me to ask which arm. And I'm like, it's not stupid. You could draw from this arm. It's okay. Don't cry. And she's like, oh my God. Oh my God. And I was like, no, it's it's really fine. And like, she continues to apologize and continues to apologize. Like when that gets dragged on and you're like, you just pity me or something. Are you like saying you're sorry for like my life or like what? Like one apology was enough. But that kind of stuff, if that's happening to you all the time, then you're like, fuck it. I'm going to wear a goddamn arm. You right, know? just just to ward away all of <laughs> all of these people, yeah. Like that. I mean, it really gets to that question. Uh, like in in reading your work and in thinking about this episode, uh, like that question of disability for whom and technology for whom kept coming across my mind. And so much of what you write about and what and, and everything you just said, you know, really points out that so many of these technologies. Uh, the the prosthetics, the you know the passive prosthetics, the active ones, like so much of that is not really designed for you. It's designed for everybody else, right? For everybody else to just feel like you're quote unquote normal. Uh, yeah. For everybody else to be comfortable in your presence, um, to not be weird or awkward about it. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, these people need to be the normal ones. Just act normal. <laughs> just, just chill out. <laughs> yeah, just chill out. Um, and one of the things that I think is really relevant here is um, the extent to which, because the military has been such a incredibly influential force in terms of design and funding for the prosthetics that are out there and for the prosthetics that are most visible. Um, it's become like a new kind of expectation for disabled people to have these sorts of technologies. Um, like, so when I was a kid, people had known about hook hands, like they call them hooks. I would get made fun of, even though I didn't have a hook, like, oh, like, haha, I bet you have a hook. And like the hook hand um, is this like dirty object, this uh, embarrassing backward technology um, that like nobody wants. Frankly, one of the best things that you could be fitted with for an upper limb disability is what is called a body powered prosthesis not a myoelectric and a body powered is you've probably seen it. You've probably seen it like made fun of on TV. I think like one of the most high profile, uh, like bad examples is like in arrested development. Um, mm -hmm. when, uh, Bus Buster loses his hand and he like gets a hook and it's not a hook. It's actually a prehensor. Blah, 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 blah. Um, but, uh, he has ostensibly a body powered where there's a wire that goes underneath the, the prosthesis and then there's like a big adhesive sort of that goes on the back and you learn how to like move your shoulder in extremely subtle ways to open and close what is called a prehensor and it's it's sort of like it's just two like stainless steel kind of grabbers that come down and clamp it's instantaneous it's super fluid very easy low tech um and gets the job done and yet when it was like offered to me when I was younger, it was like, oh God, oh God, that's real, that, you don't want that. You don't want that. that. That would look really weird. That really like underscores your disability. It really calls attention to it. I mean, I don't know, maybe attitudes have changed today, but I still like, 
I, I wish that I had learned how to use a body powered. Um, that might've been really helpful. Um, but now because of things like the Bebeonic and because of things like, honestly, like Marvel <laughs> movies, um, <laughs> that kind of like go hand in hand with like bionic hands and like dreams of the bionic future. Like it is really, really cool to have a high tech prosthesis. And like one of the people that I interviewed for um, the essay that I wrote for input is like, told me like, it is super cool when I wear my powered hand. Like people are like, wow, can you do this? Can you do that? And it's like good attention. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them. And I'm, uh, I'm glad that there has been like some growth kind of like around prostheses because when I was little, like it didn't really matter what I was wearing. It just sucked. Um, but still, I think that creates like a new kind of almost like a fashion standard. Um, it's like, well, why don't you have a power at hand? Why do you have this like funny prehensor thing? Like, Oh, what are you captain hook? Like that kind of new set of standards for disabled people, I think is sort of actively being set by like what's funded, what's visible, what's in popular culture. Yeah. Everything you're laying out here really calls to mind. I mean, you know, it's a politics of ableism, but you know, I I think what you're really laying out here uh, so well is that ableism takes many different forms. It's not just the ableism of bullying somebody because they are different or because they have a prosthetic or because they're missing a limb or only have a partial limb. That's a really overt and explicit form of ableism. But uh, there's also these more normal, like quote unquote normal, insidious, uh, like, you know, ubiquitous forms of ableism that you're laying out here. And I'm, I'm thinking as well of the, the work of Gregor Wolbring, uh, who has done a lot of really great scholarship around the politics of ableism. Um, and, and he, I'm going to just read uh, a paragraph from this essay he wrote in 2008 um, called The Politics of Ableism. And, and the, you know, I'll, I'll throw a link to this in the episode description for anybody interested. It's a really short, punchy kind of commentary that he wrote for a journal um, that just lays out so well the, the yeah, the, these different models of ableism, as he calls it. So he writes, Ableism against disabled people reflects a preference for species typical normative abilities leading to the discrimination against them as quote unquote less able and or as quote unquote impaired disabled people. This type of ableism is supported by the medical deficiency impairment categorization of disabled people or the medical model of ableism. It rejects the quote variation of being uh, a kind of a, bio, a biodiversity notion and categorization of disabled people or a social model of ableism. It leads to the focus on fixing the person or preventing more of such people being born and ignores the acceptance and accommodation of such people in their variation of being. Ableism has also long been used to justify hierarchies of rights and discrimination between other social groups and to exclude people not classified as disabled people. And what Wolbring is really pulling out here and what you've been discussing as well, Britt, is, you know, yes, there, there's this medical model of ableism, of categorizing people as, you know, impaired uh, or deficient in some way, but it also goes 
hand in hand with a social model of ableism, one that says people need to be fixed or these people need to be uh, you know, fixed by them being prevented from being born in the first place. Um, rather than uh, saying, what would an acceptance of this look like, right? They're like, just be, just be, just chill, just be normal about it, you know, or an accommodation, but not an accommodation of how do we make these people accommodate their lives to everybody else, but an accommodation that goes the other way. How do we make society? How do we make in the environments and conditions that we live in accommodating towards uh, a, a vast variety of people um, rather than this kind of norm? Could you just speak a little bit about this this kind of politics of ableism and uh, and I think this is a real I think you know Wolbring is really bringing a, a interesting distinction here between this medical model and this social model and the ways that it you know really does as you were as you were laying out levy these expectations and standards on people and also makes you do a lot of labor uh, for other people's feelings. Um, doing stuff just to, as, as you put it, just to pass in society. This, um, this makes me think of related issue, which is um, the source of prosthetic design. So um, I think, and, and we're talking about the military and, and like the influence of the military and how um, most of the arms that you know about or legs that you know about are essentially like military designed. But the influence of the military is also very cultural. And what I had learned in um, talking to um, a professor at UC San Diego named David Serlin, um, that like where we have an association of a prosthesis being something that makes people whole again is kind of uh, a militaristic idea. The idea that we have to create the whole body again, that that body was an idealized form and that we need to have it like visually match what was there before. And so I think that the starting place then of prostheses of that like ideological origin is not about the functions that are needed in this particular person's life. I think if you were to map out on an individual level what someone wants and what someone needs in terms of an assistive device what you might end up with if you were to like, I guess, you know, close your eyes and like design the thing just based on the needs as you like orient yourself around the world is maybe even a tentacle, you know, like I, uh, the emphasis on the hand as, um, it's already made emphasis on like creating, you know, five digits all over again, they're multi-articulating, um, is like, is really, really limiting what we can do with prosthetics. I think that there's an overemphasis on the hand and overemphasis on like bringing that body whole again, making that body whole again, is um, really making it harder to see and hear what disabled people actually want. want, want. 
really also another one of like the core resonant threads that emerges in the writing like talking about you know getting back to the desires and the articulations of the of the disability rights movement in the 1960s but also like recognizing that like are we a demilitarized prosthetics means that you have to actually ask people who need them what they want and like on what like what you first you have to you know ask them what they want but also you have to start actually catering towards the people who need them not just as we were talking about earlier that narrow sector and not just for preconceived notions about like idealized forms of the bodies and like what we think that they should look like and how they should look like and how they should perform and how they should you know exist in in, in public Mm -hmm. space right I think that that, you know, in your piece and in your writing, that is like something I have, I think going through it have not realized, not considered and also been, I think, surprised at how much of this is um, both the connections with the militarism and then both the connections with the politics of ableism is just normalized, baked in and and also constantly reinforced, I think, Mm -hmm. um, and also I think like, you know, your example with the Marvel movie was, was interesting and in, in like talking about how that was making me think about how Marvel movies in of themselves are like militarized creations, but that ha- can like result in like a good sort of attention, uh, you know, for one of the people that you interviewed. And so like, is there a way in the, in the process of demilitarizing it you to use cultural products as they exist now to get there, you know, like, is there room for these movies or these these depictions of high-powered individuals with bionics in pursuit of that bionic future? Can that be used to demilitarize it? Or do you think like all the stuff that is being produced is feeding right back into that? And so it has to, it all has to be abandoned or worked against or like critically broken down in one way or another. Can I, really I, I, I want to jump in there uh, just to add to that as well. Something that you were talking about before we started recording, Britt, was that like, you know, it's also, it, it, there's like a, a lot of the, it's either the like Marvel movie, like depictions of like the Winter Soldier's bionic arm, right? Which is like so advanced that it's indistinguishable from a biological arm. Or, uh, you know, what you were talking about, like, what about a tentacle? Right. Like that would be like so much more useful and it would actually work. Right. Like like you're you know, you, you talk about how you don't use your, uh, you know, your your advanced cybernetic arm in large part because it's like it, it makes you more disabled having to use it um, because the technology just doesn't fucking work. Um, but you also are talking about like these other broader imaginaries of what a prosthetic limb might look like are often couched in terms of like body horror. Right. It's like a, a David Cronenberg kind of thing. Right. And that and that like scares people away from from actually not only imagining, but actually embracing alternative designs that might functionally and actually be way better for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to pile in on this. I and mean, you got you got to answer three people's questions. <laughs> you know, you were saying like a a tentacle would be the most ideal like replacement limb, you know, that you really think of. Okay. Maybe, but, but I'm just saying like, in and in, you know, ideally if you're, if you're looking to replace a limb, you know, people want something that is normal looking as possible. Something is, is least shocking. It doesn't draw attention. Um, maybe something like the little, you know, 
I, I apologize. I forgot what it's called. The limb that Buster was using in Arrested Development makes a more ideal yeah. limb replacement than some gaudy piece of, you know, technology that may, may or may not work for that person. Um, mm-hmm. What I'm, the point I'm trying to get at is do you, do you foresee or hope that there will be a normalization when people see something like that? They don't have this like internalized ableism that they didn't realize that they carry maybe able to kind of shed that and go, yeah. you know what, that if that works best for that person and then that's what works best for that person. And not that it frightens me because it looks unhuman. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, you know, the, the commonality here is, is, is film and, and TV and um, film and TV is just like done a just totally miserable attempt at disability representation and visibility. It's just um, been appalling uh, and like in terms of bodily difference, um, limb difference, missing limbs, um, most of the time when that occurs in film and TV, you have a, um, an actor that has all their limbs that they've green screened out. Mm. Um, and then when that is like, when that is their reality, then even then we don't like spend any time with that different body, it is then very quickly covered with a prosthesis. Mm. That's, you know, like uh, Luke Skywalker or uh, uh, the Mad Max um, character, Furiosa. Yeah. I think there, just like in, in, in the very few seconds that we have with a differently shaped body, with a disabled body, um, the fact that then it is so quickly covered up, like that just sort of reinforces societal norms that different bodies need to be augmented. They need, they need coverage. They need a prosthesis. Um, with regards to your question, Ed, about like Marvel and whether or not Bionic something, something, I think that one of the things that is so rare to see, I can't think of an example, so rare to see in film and TV is the reality for a lot of people like me is that we, we come up with our own contraptions. We come up Mm. with our own ways of doing things and handling things. Um, We use some objects in ways that were not their intended purpose to accomplish a task. Um, We come up with little rigs. We uh, like do the, uh, what are they called? Like the elastic shoelaces. Like, I mean, there's just so many different ways that um, I navigate my house and adapt things for me. And sometimes those adaptations like are just way easier than having to put on a prosthetic limb. I think that there's also difficulty in the media representing that because then it kind of like wraps into like a disability porn, like look how fucking resilient she is. She did that with the thing. I, I would love to spend time with characters in film and TV who are comfortable in their bodies that are different. And hopefully that um, those people who are cast like are actually disabled and they're not green screened out limbs. Um, and that like we actually see how they live and how they adapt to life. That's like a normalization effort, you know, and it's and it's only really possible if it's not like a one off thing. That's like, a, a you know, an inspiration porn kind of like, oh, look how she overcame. Um, th- there needs to be like a sort of 
push on multiple fronts, like culturally overall, in terms of that kind of representation, that's like, this is okay that this person looks different and does different things. And look, look, they're also like pretty self-sufficient. They've come up with their own adaptations. And I think that the meet, uh, film and TV has done um, an, an, an okay job of uh, including people who use wheelchairs, um, but and and also some. I mean, ugh, sometimes they do an okay job with representing intellectual disabilities. Um, <laughs> but in terms of missing limbs, in terms of limb difference, it's just it's not there yet. Yeah, and you've talked about as well uh, a distinction between arms and legs, and and you've mentioned in 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 one of your pieces, right, that like you know we we see representations um, in you know like fashion models or fashionistas and things like that of of people that are you know uh, using prosthetics, but it's always legs. Right there, yeah. and I, I was like, I was doing some of my own, uh, just Google image searching around, just searching terms like prosthetics or military prosthetics or, uh, you know, uh, advanced prosthetics, like just, just you know, adding different words to prosthetic, and almost all the images that came up were of legs. Almost nothing came up of 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 upper limb. Uh, prosthetics, uh, or, or, or amputations or partial limbs. Um, like in part, that seems like based on what you've been talking about that, like the leg, the leg prosthetics just work better <laughs> than the arm ones. They look better. Like, could you talk a little bit about that, that real, like, like visibility, uh, difference yeah. in terms of representation of legs and arms? Yeah. Um, I think that on the one hand, like this is a this is about numbers. The vast majority of people who have an amputation because of cardiovascular disease, um, because of diabetes, um, are their lower limb lower limb amputations. And I think the vast majority of amputations from war are also lower limb. It's like walking on a landmine blow it off. Um, so I think part of that is just like numbers. It's, uh, less likely that you're, uh, less likely that you would encounter, um, upper limb prostheses in media and day-to-day life. Um, but I think that there's also a weird kind of like, uh, leg supremacy going on here. (laughs) Um, because I think that we have decided that, hands like the human hand is so intimate and personal and like very associated with your humanness with your identity fingerprint scans make you unique your hands are like a pathway to the soul whatever whatever um legs we have a little bit more like distance from um and i think with prosthetics we've kind of i mean people say this that we've sort of gone into the uncanny valley with upper limb and i so i think that Upper limb prosthetics can be people find them more weird, um, find them more creepy uh, for some reason. 
And uh, with lower limb, I think that there's like a lot more space too to kind of fetishize this part of the body. You know, legs, legs are seen as sexy. Um, so I think that there's been a lot more creativity around legs. There's been um, a number of startups that do 3D printed designs. And every time I check in on them, they just do the 3D printed designs for legs and not for arms. I'm like, why is that? I just want to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's just like a lot of, uh, uh, fashion model, like, uh, representation for, for prosthetic legs too. Um, and I think that we've just, as a society made space for like that as a sexual object. Mm. Whereas with arms, it's still like, it's still weird. It's still not okay. At least that's what it seems like to me. Picking up on something you were just talking about a minute ago, and I think we're we're kind of coming to the close of the episode. So I wanna I wanna I wanna zoom out a little bit more and ask some some bigger questions. Uh, and and I, I something you said was very interesting about how a lot of people just figure out what works for them. You know, they they kind of jerry rig these uh, you know contraptions or devices or methods that just you know that help them that work for them and it it reminds me of you know last week we had a conversation with Nick Chavez who's an engineer and we were talking about like these these questions of a kind of like anti-capitalist engineering right where it's like you know everybody mm-hmm. has the ability to 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 be an engineer, essentially, right? To create the things that help them with their lives. Um, and they aren't just captured by these imperatives of profit, of capital accumulation, of investment from the military or mm-hmm. uh, VCs or big companies or whatever. And something you said, one, I'm going to read a quote from your Wired piece back at you oh, because no. I think it's really <laughs> good. So you said, quote, Over a hundred years of war, we became so obsessed with fixing disabled people with high-tech gadgets that we lost sight of how disability is a social condition. A justice-oriented approach to prosthetics would dispense with the medical model of disability that sees disabled bodies as profit opportunities in need of fixing, and instead embrace the needs of prosthesis users and their desires. That could mean taking the industry in a different direction by focusing on cheap, simple, task-oriented solutions that are reminiscent of Captain Dorinzi's gadgets from 1822. After seeing this demonstration of a prosthesis prototype, I'd love to just Velcro some stuff to my arm. (laughs) So could you talk a little bit more about what does a a, a justice-oriented approach to engineering, a justice-oriented approach to assistive technologies actually look like? Uh, You know, everything we've been laying out really shows how the current approach, both medically, socially, technologically, is really baked in with this politics of ableism, not a politics of justice. So I'm, I'm just, I would love to hear expand on that a little bit more, a kind of disability justice oriented approach to these technologies. Yeah. I think like if we want to change the prosthetics industry as a starting point, as a starting point for every kind of new design needs to be at at the heart of that needs to be prosthesis users needs to be disabled people. And I mean, that sounds like a fucking no brainer, but it's often not the case. And like, 
case in point, um, most recently uh, on, on Twitter, there was um, a, a tweet that went out uh, from a team of Berkeley engineers that had um, designed a robot guide dog uh, for blind people. And this video was like roundly, like everyone found this video, like just totally clueless and offensive because they, um, they tested it on a guy wearing a blindfold and who's like taking these tiny little nervous steps and having this like jerky little robot dog, like flipping out in an office for a lot of people who are viewing this, who've had interactions with guide dogs, who use guide dogs, um, are like, how on earth was, did you think that this would be an improvement? Um, and you have to ask, what is the intervention here? What were you hoping to fix? Because every time we make a design like this, the idea is that we're going to fix something. There's going to be some problem that we are designing our way out of, right? And um, if you speak to anybody who uses these sorts of dogs, they would tell you, well, one of the problems is that training these dogs is expensive and time consuming and there's a wait list to get these dogs. But we want these dogs. These dogs are great. Everybody wants a dog. Um, and if you were to do that research initially, you would know that a robot dog is not what is going to solve that problem. And in fact, maybe the money that you had raised to make this robot dog should have just been donated to whatever nonprofit organization that trains more dogs. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking about that video in terms of what I had encountered with prosthetics. And it's like, we need as a starting point the actual problems in the industry and the actual problems in the industry is that we keep making these super high tech, really cool looking, very complex, labor intensive, expensive technologies that hardly anybody can afford with or without insurance and very, very few research and develop, very, very little research and development into stuff that is low cost, that is simple, that you can repair yourself. And so I feel like a justice-oriented approach starts with the question of what are the actual problems in the industry? Who experiences these problems? What are like, what is the majority experience? I mean, like I hate, you know, the, uh, the kind of like the standard, like what is, what, is the, what is the thing that most people are dealing with because most people is kind of a tyranny. Um, but like starting there as a way to then navigate your design questions is like, just baseline decency, right? Um, so when I was imagining like a justice-oriented approach and I was talking to David Serlin, um, we were also talking about the site at which prosthesis users like myself interface with the prosthetist. And that is at the prosthetist office. Um, and David Serlin was like, we need to queer the prosthetist office. And I was like so obsessed with this. I like wrote it down a bunch of times, like queer the prosthetist office. Um, and what that really meant for me was like, when we encounter this medical professional in the office, we need a space that doesn't just assume you want to be made whole again. That doesn't just assume that you want to be a cyborg that doesn't just plaster on the walls, like, you know, inspiration posters about veterans and I'm serious. I see those all the time. Hmm. So a justice oriented approach, again, just like kind of starts at that moment of, of intersection between the designer and the recipient and like 
really focusing on with so much respect what the real problems are in that industry and what the real problems are for that individual because we've been so wrapped up in the kinds of technologies that we think are appropriate that we don't really know what the kinds of technologies that are actually appropriate. I mean, I think that is a, one, it's a condemnation of society that that's like a radical approach. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, like that that's somehow a radical approach to engineering, a radical approach to designing and creating these technologies. When, as you just laid out, it, it's the simple approach. It's the simple and most obvious approach. I think it really does bake in and boiled down to that, you know, so much of what we've just, what we've been getting at in the, in this episode is that that like fundamental biological essentialism that mm-hmm. you know that colors a lot of how we look at bodies and different types of bodies. And you know, we we were talking about before we were recording about you know places where this is heightened to really extreme degrees like at airports like the TSA right where uh, <laughs> PTSD I, I, <laughs> but you know it's like this understanding the body is some some kind of biologically essential thing rather than a socially conditioned thing uh and and you know whether it's differences in able uh, ability differences in gender differences in race uh like they all just intersect at that point of some kind of you know biological normativity um Mm -hmm. and and just a complete uh you know inability to recognize that we live in a society <laughs> and, and that these things are always already socially constructed and socially conditioned, conditioned. yeah i i i think that is a wonderful place to wrap up the episode i you know is there anything that we didn't get to any big point that you really want to to raise or drive home before before we let you go that's a that's a good question let me let me think for a second of course you thank know, your time no pressure i just want to say that um i want to be really clear that if you use a prosthesis Your choice of prosthesis is entirely yours. I don't have anything of ill will to say about what anybody chooses for any reason. Um, I just want more options for us and I want more respect for us. I think that our options are so incredibly limited for insane reasons. And the reason that I write about these things and think about these things and have kind of made this a big part of my career is because I want a justice-oriented approach to prosthetics because I think that this is what would best serve disabled people. I think that's a beautiful statement and a true statement to wrap up on. So thank you so much, Britt, for coming on TMK. This was a wonderful and much needed discussion. Um, where can people, speaking of your work, where can people find you? Where can people read your work? Oh, you can go on my cool writer website, BrittHYoung.com. That's Britt with two T's. Um, and I also tweet, which is probably a bad idea. 
um, at B H Y rights. This is a bad pun. It's rights with an R, not rights with a pen. <laughs> we I, don't will, I don't know. I came up with it too long ago and now I'm stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't that the way. Ain't that the way. Uh, we will, we will of course have links to your website and to your Twitter uh, in the episode description. Um, highly recommend people give Brit a follow and read Brit's work. It's really, really good. Um, and you can find us uh, at patreon.com slash this machine kills for more premium episodes every single week. So thank you again, Brit. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Uh, and, and until next time yeah. later. Adios.